welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello. This episode of Employee of the Month is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible has over 100,000 digital downloads to choose from. And if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash employee, that's audiblepodcast.com backslash employee, you can get a free 30-day trial, which is what I did, or you can get a free audiobook download. All you've got to do is just sign up, audiblepodcast.com slash employee, and you'll also be supporting the Employee of the Month show, which is super exciting, even more so to have our first sponsor be a company I actually use and happily will encourage and endorse um, to others. I was thinking about when I briefly tried acting, the closest I got to booking a commercial, I was pretty excited. I I, I, um, I was on call. I, I got the call back and it was between me and another woman. And it was for, just drum roll please, a local ad for a pharmaceutical drug company. I would be playing the non-speaking role of the wife of a new immigrant with Crohn's disease. And I didn't get it and was devastated. I was genuinely quite upset about being rejected. And then I found out that my sister-in-law worked at the ad agency and I was like, even with connections, I still can't break in. And I think that was a great opportunity to realize that I needed serious medical attention. I'm not sure if that drug for Crohn's disease would have cut it. Uh, I do think that when I would go in for those commercial auditions, there must have been part of me that was signaling, I'm not sure how I feel about endorsing this project. Is this product involved in some type of ethical quandary? Will I be if I'm endorsing it? This will be my uh, segue. It'll be a decent segue, or also known as the only segue, to introduce our first guest who actually does expose these types of ethical quandaries and asks others to um, look at the facts and, and look at these types of questions. He is a consummate journalist, very excited to have on Employee of the Month, Mr. Brian Lair. And Brian is the host of WNYC's The Brian Lair Show. It's sort of the mothership of local morning news and cultural programming in New York. WNYC is our NPR news affiliate. And I think Brian Lair is so good because he's such a keen listener, which is a sorely lacking proclivity in talk radio and journalism in general. So that's what I think he brings to the table that no one else does on the same level. He also makes New York feel completely uh, small and mind-numbing subjects sometimes seem accessible and interesting, which, which I is a huge feat. Uh, if you can do that with the tax code, you can do anything as far as I'm concerned. Hear for yourself and decide for yourself. Here's my conversation with Mr. Brian Lair. So I wanted to ask you, you've won a Peabody Award. You were nominated for a Regional Emmy Award. You won the Associated Press's New York Broadcaster's Best Interview Award six times. Some people think you've just won it twice but you won it six times. Um, and you also won Best Books for the Teenaged Award for the Korean Americans from New York Public Library. And when you hosted NPR's On the Media, it was named the best weekly show by the public radio news directors. So what is it like winning the coveted and prestigious Employee of the Month Award? This really puts the Peabody in its place. And Katie is handing it to me right now. It's an eight and a half by 11 plastic framed... <laughs> 
very prestigious award with a photo of me grabbed for free from the images file yes. of Google, no doubt. <laughs> a photo I haven't seen since I was 22 years old. No, I'm kidding. That's pretty recent. You're only photo. 25, so That's it's right. not that far off. Um, and uh, Employee of the Month Award, I'm going to find about three-quarters of my office in which to display this. And it's for leader. That's very generous. I think it's um, just such an accurate uh, description of, of what you do as a journalist. Um, and in New York, in the local community, I went to an MLK Day. It was a really nice way to celebrate. Was um, Brooklyn CLB. Museum. You were the there Brooklyn, at Museum. Brooklyn Museum. It was such a, such a treat to see you live because um, it's such a funny relationship as a listener to think you know someone who's a host, even though you don't obviously know well, you there, There's a line that I use sometimes that I stole from uh, Leanne Hansen, who used to host Weekend Edition on NPR. And when I go before a live audience, and I didn't use this uh, at the Martin Luther King Day because I know a lot of those people have been to our previous Martin Luther King Day events. But um, I'll walk out on stage Maybe people will applaud, and I'll gaze out at the audience, and I'll say, so this is what you look like. I always imagined you'd be taller. <laughs> to turn it around. That's great. Because it is a funny relationship, <laughs> right? When Absolutely. When you are a disembodied voice in people's homes and people's cars. What's the oddest thing a listener has told you that they do while, you know, they listen? I love to listen to you while I'm cleaning. Or what is it that they, have you ever had something very strange that someone said? Does the FCC uh, <laughs> monitor this? No, I'm kidding. I, I can't think of an individual one, honestly. But the whole experience of being on the radio is very casual. I don't know. It's intimate because people do feel a strong connection, clearly, which is very special and gives me a sense of responsibility, you know, to the listeners, but uh, as well as closeness and warmth. But it's very casual in a way that, say, going to the movies is not. So you want to see what your latest, uh, your, your favorite director's latest work is. You pay your $12 and you go and sometimes 15 whatever right it is, and you sit in a room where the lights go out and you do nothing but sit in your chair and pay rapt attention to their work for the next two hours. When people are listening to my work, they're making breakfast, they're brushing their teeth, they're waiting for alternate side of the street parking to end so they can get out of the car, whatever it is. And then when it's over, I could be in the middle of the most profound thought or the biggest journalistic revelation about to come out of the mouth of my guests. And, oh, well, sorry, you know, my parking meter's expired. I'm off to uh, Safeway now. Um, did you have a, a mentor growing up? Do you remember any people who particularly, even if they weren't in radio, but people who you looked up to and thought, I want to be like them, or people who sought you out and said, I'd like to help you? People who are role models because I heard them on the radio or people who I worked with and were my mentors? Specifically the latter. Um, I've had a strangely mentorless existence. And I think about this when, you know, um, seeing other people come up and seeing the value that the professional world in almost any field places on the importance of mentors. 
right? So, like, I went to, uh, I guess you could say that my first radio show was on a summer camp radio station. This is before college. Before college. In, in the summer before college, actually. Where was this? In Beckett, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires, a long-defunct teenage performing arts camp called Tomoka. And officially, I was there as a counselor to teach the flute. And That's right. You love music. Okay. So yeah. You- and I was, you know, classically trained on flute as a kid and love all kinds of music um, today. Uh, both my kids went to a music-themed elementary school. Um, so I'm very involved with music and started out as a music host. That's what I first wanted to do in radio. Um, and then got more and more interested in news and issues and talk as time went on. But the first radio show that I did was at the summer camp where there was a counselor older than me who had a part-time radio gig somewhere or other and figured out that he could hook up the camp PA system to two turntables and turn it into a little kind of fake radio station. So he did this and I did this and whoever, whatever campers wanted to do it could be DJs. And we just broadcast over the camp PA system, which, of course, was unfair to everybody in the camp because they were forced to listen. There was no escape. It wasn't like they could turn us off and, you know, go shopping at Target. And um, so I I did a few shows like that. And then when I went to college, uh, we had a campus radio station at SUNY at Albany that had no faculty advisor. I think there was a faculty advisor on paper, uh, but I think that person had retired about five years earlier. Nobody noticed. Nice. Okay. So we were just the inmates running the asylum. You know, we were a bunch of college kids uh, into music or into news or into sports, and we were just doing it. And it was completely mentorless. And I thought when I graduated college that I had done my last radio show. Um, because regular people, ordinary people who are not, um, you know, pick the radio icon of my day. Um, who was that? Yeah. Who were they? They were Jonathan Schwartz and cousin Brucie and Gene Shepard and, um, Steve Post, Mm -hmm. you know, Larry Josephson, that regular, regular people, Eh, nobody's going to hire me to be on the radio. Um, And I wasn't trained to be on the radio. I just did it a lot as my main extracurricular activity in college. But then when I got out, I got pretty much the first, depends what you count, but kind of the first radio job I applied for um, in the summer right after I graduated. And right there in Albany, a friend of mine told me that there was an index card that somebody posted on the campus job board looking for an overnight radio announcer. So luck, as you know, as a professional job seeker, yes, <laughs> that luck always plays a role. It's a horrible title. It, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you have a job, you can be a professional <laughs> job seeker anyway. Um, which I was for my first two years in radio, which was in Albany where I changed jobs like five times in two years because oh. I got, each time I would get a gig that was a little bit better. Okay. 
And that's the total opposite of a professional job seeker. Right? <laughs> <But> <laughs> that meant you, you were know, doing I was, well. I was always looking. You know, I worked overnights and then got something that paid less but was on days. But it was a lifestyle improvement. Uh, then got something that paid even less, but it was a news director position. Uh, you know, strange little trade-offs that you make when you're breaking into something, uh, or even probably much later in your career along the way. So we're all professional job seekers in a way. But the, um, you know, thing that happened was that this index card was posted with that job. My friend saw it and told me about it. I was lucky enough to have been told about it. I called this place up. They said, oh, okay, well, come right in for an interview. And I came in for an interview, and um, they were like, well, you could have this overnight announcing job on one condition. Can you start tonight at 10 o'clock? Wow. Because they had an employee who had gotten sick. And they needed somebody right away. And this, this is a was, real showbiz story, though. I guess it's it was a tiny little radio station on a hill outside of Albany that played uh, what we fondly might call Muzak. Oh, nice! Oh, nice! Okay. Elevator music. The oh. official radio term for it is beautiful music. That was the name of the format, which may be defunct now. I don't know. You really but, paid your dues, though, then, just because you had to listen to that music, even on its own, having to listen to that music. Yes. Or Muzak. Yes, and I didn't have to spin it. It was half-hour tapes from this syndicated service, and I was basically a newscaster. I was wow. doing the news at the top of each hour, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, in Albany, New York. Was anybody listening? I have no idea. But the sort of fun part was that I was supposed to prepare news stories for the morning drive. And, really? you know... So um, there, at least, I was able to, to do some writing, record a few spots. Not that I had gone out and reported anything, but that's, you know, part of the, the magic slash fakery of radio sometimes is you take something off the AP wire. Yes. You read it in your voice. You don't say that you went out and reported the story, but the anchor in the morning says, uh, oh, there were three holdups in Schenectady today at three different liquor stores. Brian Lehrer reports. The three liquor stores were blah, 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 blah. And it sounds like I was there. I was just reading it off the AP. But that was the, more, in, the most interesting part of that job. And did you uh, cut it and splice it together and everything like that? Yes. I had learned how to do that in college. And that was peer-to-peer, you know? Seniors teaching freshmen, things so, like that. Mentorless to get to the back to the point. And that just happened to be the way it worked out. Do you feel like mentoring is overrated? Um, do no. you mentor anyone? Uh, hopefully, uh, mentor various people who come through as producers um, and then go on to do other things. But is it a conscious thing that you say, I really want to look out for this person here? In, in more general terms, just trying to um, look out for whoever is working with me. You know, I, I don't expect the young producers who come and work for the show to stay forever. They're generally very creative people who want to do things in journalism or otherwise in media. And so, you know, hopefully it's kind of an ongoing process of talking about people's lives and people's aspirations as we're doing the daily business of the show. 
Your show has a particular flavor because of your voice, ultimately. But are there topics that you steer away from because you're like, ah, oh, the takeaway, we'll, we'll cover that, or? Not really. Um, I think one of the things about our show is that it can be about anything, um, as long as there's an issue attached to it somehow. You know, Leonard Lopate's show on WNYC is even more about anything, because that's, uh, you know, it doesn't have this, it's not rooted in the news as we are. It's more of an arts and culture. I mean, it feels arts like more culture, of an arts. But they're also talking about a lot of issues. Yeah. So in a way, the range is larger. Um, we are more identified as a news-oriented, issue-oriented show, though I like to say it's about politics and life. But the life segments that we do, there has to be an issue there. And either it's an issue that relates to politics, um, but we get people's personal stories on it. You know, if you've been laid off from your job, um, to, just to take a random example that has nothing to do with the fact that I'm <laughs> being interviewed on this particular podcast. <laughs> if you got laid off from your job and you're having a lot of trouble finding a new job, what policies do you want from the government? Right. Well, I learned about unemployment from your show, actually. Unemployment insurance? Yeah, in general, and learning about how people, um, why they got it, why they didn't. I mean, there, were, there are things that I have learned from your show. I find your show very civic-minded. Civic-minded, and in that intersection, as often as we can, I don't know if civic-minded doesn't mean, like, dry and wonky. <laughs> I think that you are uh, can't get any closer to dry and wonky, but I mean in, I mean that in the best way possible. I mean, you, you make it tangible and feasible to, to say, oh, and I can, I can be dry and wonky, too, or yes. I can at least right. uh, learn how to be participating in my community. Right. Wonky, to me, can be a good thing. It's a word that I've tried now and again to reclaim. You you need to reclaim that. You need to you need it's to be a good proud thing. of and, that. And you know, like Ivory Cox uh, came to prominence writing that comedy that she called Wonkette. Yeah. Right? And you know, because I mean what is a wonk if not somebody who actually knows a lot about something? Right. Like that's that's something to be proud of, particularly in our country in this time. When I was a kid, nerd was never a compliment. No. No. And then eventually, it was the smart kids who knew about computers. Well, and now I find that it'll be someone who's quite silly, and they'll say, I'm such a nerd about pop culture. Right. And well, it can be anything. You know, you, anything that you're, like, totally into and have a lot of obsessive knowledge. You can be a bicycle nerd. You but can be a Downton Abbey nerd. Whatever. I was I was really happy on your show today. I grew up with a mother who's obsessed with Jane Austen, and I had to grow up and watch all of these BBC uh, documentaries and dramas and period uh, dramas, and they're all soaps. And I was very happy that the um, commentator you had from Slate, she said she loved the show, and she also said it is a soap. And I love the show, Downton Abbey, but I was really happy that she acknowledged it was a soap. And there's another example of, you know, having a segment on the show that may not seem like news exactly, but it has a cultural hook. It's where, if not politics and life intersect where things that matter, you know, and life intersect because that show does have overtones of class relationships yeah. and things about war and stuff like that woven into the soap opera, which even though I'd never seen it, it seems like from what I gathered that that's its brilliance. So three quick questions. Um, do you have any regrets? Are there any 
interviews looking back that you wish you could uh, redo or people who you are dying to get on the air that you haven't been able to get on the air? Bill Clinton, are you listening? Bill, John Stewart, John, you listen to this podcast, don't you? Some of his writers may be on the show, so that it's worth yeah, it. Yeah, and I mean, we've had other <laughs> cast members from the show, but, uh, you know, and he's even said publicly that he's a listener and digs the show, so that's cool. But it's, um, you know, one day, John, you will come on the show and be a guest instead of the host. And Bill Clinton's never been on the and show? We won't make you be our monkey. <laughs> right. Remember that moment? Yes. on CNN? I love that. You know, and that's, you must know as a comedy writer, that that's one of the, um, very, for doing a live interview show, when you have comics on the show, you really have to coordinate with them in advance as to how you're going to use them. So I had a terrible experience with Al Franken the first time he was on the show, where I was asking him questions that were setting him up to be funny. This was before he was a senator. Yes, yeah. But nevertheless, he wanted to talk about serious things. And he would have been willing to talk about his craft as a comedian, um, I, I think. And he wanted to talk about the world. And I was setting him up to do shtick. And it was a completely inappropriate assumption on my part. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think it was an inappropriate assumption, having interviewed him three times and getting the same interview all three times. So <laughs> as, a, as a rookie reporter, you know, trying to trying to get interviews with him, it was really hard to get anything out of him. So maybe that's just him. But when Jon Stewart went on CNN Crossfire that time and they were trying to get him to be funny and he said, I'm not going to be your monkey. Um, you know, that was as much a failure of preparation on the part of the interviews, interviewers, I would say, um, as as it was a, an outburst by Jon Stewart, as it sometimes got reported. I think in that sense, it was a failure of the interviewers, whereas with the Al Franken case you're talking about, this was before he was running for office. So instead you're having, um, this is a cliche about celebrities, but that how can they want to come on right. and talk about saving the whales when they're on this serious uh, homicidal drama that's not sure. really serious. But since it. then, when we have comedians uh, on the show, we coordinate them with them before and say, do you want to be funny, you know, we could do this kind of a bit where Brian will do X, Y, and Z, and then you can react to it in your way. Or do you want to just come on and and talk? So you, t you treat them like people. Yeah. <laughs> you give Professionals. Them, you give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, the last thing I wanted to ask, you love music. You were uh, a music major in addition to communications. And you had mentioned also that you thought you wanted to host a music show are you happy now not to have sort of tainted that passion? Does it remain a passion because it's not your day job? You know, it's such an intuitively brilliant question that gets into a moment in my past um, that I haven't actually thought about it in a while. But, but, but I got what I thought was my dream job about two years out of college, which was hosting a album rock-oriented uh, FM radio show. And it was fairly freeform. So I, even though it was a commercial station, I was able to weave in some jazz and play, you know, the album rock tracks that I had a passion for. And it was awesome. And it was my dream job. And what it was what I had done mostly in college. But I had to work a sixth day. It was a six-day-a-week job. 
And I said, well, for my sixth, for my weekend show, can I come in on Sunday nights at midnight and just open the phones? Because I was also interested in the news. I was interested in talking to people. And to my shock, two years out of college, they said yes. And the reason was because that was before the FCC withdrew any requirements for radio stations to have public affairs programming. Oh, wow. Um, you know, now it doesn't matter. Now everything's all stratified. There are news and talk stations and there are all music stations. Once upon a time, every station, in order to prove that it was using the public airwaves and the public interest, had to do some public affairs. Wow. So their version of public affairs, which shows you how low the standards were at the FCC, was to have one of their rock and roll DJs, me, come in on Sunday nights and open the phones and talk about whatever I wanted to talk about for three hours till I, three o'clock in the morning. I love this because it's like the gym teacher teaching math. You know, we're going to have to, you also have to teach math in addition yes. to this. Okay, and that's because of the shortage of math teachers. So the gym teacher gets drafted in and teaches math through basketball scores. In my case, there certainly were no shortage of qualified journalists to do this kind of a show. But I was like, oh, pick me, pick me. And that was the path of least resistance for them. So... Quickly, I found myself devoting more time to preparing my three-hour-a-week, middle-of-the-night talk show than my five-day-a-week, five-hour-a-day afternoon drive music show. And I realized, aha, this is what I really want. This is what the grown-up me wants to do. And after two years of that, I actually went back uh, to school at that point to get a master's in journalism so that I could focus on broadcast journalism as my career. So I don't even remember what question I was answering, but it had something well, to do with Well, I was, I was curious as to why you didn't become a music host. Oh, because, right. So I, yes, so I did, and this, this emerged out of that. And it's neat, too, because you've still kept that passion and enjoy it, and you can enjoy it for the sake of enjoying oh, music. Right. And what closes the loop there, the thing that made the question so intuitive to get into a, you know, a part of my soul, really, that I, that I don't have much reason to talk about, is that one of the other things that was happening at the time was that I found that I was becoming numb to music by having to listen to so much music for professional purposes. And it was a relief to get out of that so I could go back to being, you know, genuinely moved by music which is a strange experience for somebody to have, but I had it. It's a huge, I quit stand-up when I stopped laughing, and I remember the moment when I got so excited to laugh again. (laughs) Um, This has been such a privilege. I know you need to go back to work and and deliver news to people who are waiting, and I will be waiting on Monday. No, I'm I'm going to the gym. (laughs) Is that right? Right now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you run three miles a day or something like that? I try to. Yeah, most, most days. All right. So now I'm feeling duly humbled because now I actually should exercise as well. But I wanted to to thank you for being an employee of the month. It's a privilege to interview you and give you the award for leader. You're the only one who's received that award. Um, so thank you so, so much, Brian Lair. And thank you to WNYC for letting us conduct the interview in your office. It is very, uh, it, seriously, very generous of you to, to give me the award with that title. And next month is going to be anticlimactic now, no matter what happens. (laughs) Thank you so much. No matter what Newt Gingrich does on the campaign trail. (laughs) I won't top this. Oh, God. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you for tuning in. If you would like to nominate someone for a dream job or get involved 
subscribe to the podcast and find out about upcoming live shows at UCB, please check out our website, employeeofthemonthshow.com. Again, that's employeeofthemonthshow.com. Special thanks to you all, to UCB, Sirius XM, our audio engineers, Ian Mazoff and Damien Strange, and to the wonderful musicians, our house band, The New Guys, Arthur Lewis and Shockwave, who composed the beautiful theme music you're listening to. Again, thanks to all of you, and don't forget to get your parking ticket validated. Now I gotta figure out where I locked up my bike. <laughs>